For every success story out there, there's countless of guys that when depression, when broke, or and the mental health toll, we no one talks about this. But quite frankly, guys, you have to ask yourself why you're doing it. Welcome to The Wagon Live. This week, we have Solon Angel, founder and chief impact officer of MindBridge with us. With 16 years of experience in high-tech firms, he launched MindBridge with the goal of transforming the financial auditing business with machine learning or artificial intelligence. The company's software is designed to flag anomalies that auditors can then analyze more closely. In this very authentic and honest conversation, he took us through his journey and what he would do differently if he had to start over. Hi, I'm Solon Angel. Um, who I am? Um, I'm a rebellious, stubborn. Um, if you ask my team, they'll tell you my last name is deceiving. Um, if you ask my mother, she'll tell you definitely it's true. I'm an angel. Uh, but somehow it depends. Um, I'm an entrepreneur several times. I'm a father of two daughters. And uh, sometimes I do angel investment. Um, yeah, I think that's about it. Yeah. All right. And um, what is your background? How did you get where you are today? Mm. What did you do before, before MindBridge? Um, my background is that of a very um, unusual journey, if you want. Um, I was born in Brazil of a mulata, which is a mixed person with Aboriginal roots, um, who is fearless, rebellious, and stubborn uh, mother, and a father that is a true adventurer, which is a French hippie that says, I'm hippie, but not that cool. If you touch me, I'll beat you up. So uh, more of an adventurer, like th think of like a French Pepe Le Pew mix with Indiana Jones type of guy with the mustache. And um, basically, um, he went to Brazil for two months for the summer and stayed 10 years, got married and had two kids. Um, and then um, my background is that I, I moved a lot in my life and I was exposed to a diversity in my family. And in place, I was three times, uh, three times an immigrant. I'm more proud of having been three times an immigrant than having been a tech entrepreneur. Because if you think about what an immigrant has to do when he arrives in a country where he doesn't speak the language, he knows no one, he has to prove himself to everyone to be accepted. And when you think about when you start a business, you have to prove yourself and the business to a smaller population. You don't have to prove it to the whole fucking country. Sorry for swearing. I tried to do that. You have to prove yourself just to a few clients, right? Uh, who usually, if you're not completely a lunatune, you pick a real problem to solve. Um, so, yeah, that, does that answer the question? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Absolutely, absolutely. Yeah. <laughs> and, um, okay, so that was your background. That was what you did before. And what do you do now? What is MindBridge? What do you do? So, um, and I have to give a, a warning. Actually, if you can go back on the slide before, there's a little logo I don't want to talk about. MindBridge will not exist without fresh founders, which, and Shopify would not be where, where they are without fresh founders. Um, and it's a bit like, I call it a fight club, but positive flag fight clubs for entrepreneurs out of uh, Canada. So if you think of fight club, it's like male domination through chaos. And like, if it's the first night you must fight and then you don't talk about the fight club and then, um, shit like that. So we, I'll just look at the rule and say, we we'll just flip the rules. And it's like, and also fight club is only male. So it's okay. Well, first it's open to everyone. And second, we're not here to destroy the world. We're here to build it up. Um, the name is a bit quirky. And if you look at the first cohort of fresh founders, you have get around Sam Zaid, you have Toby and Harley from Shopify, you have Aideen from Fellow and before Fleetware who got acquired by SurveyMonkey. And I can go on like that. The first five guys, you have two unicorns and like three other tens of millionaires type of guy. Eight years ago, they were all painless broke. 
and they are very solid, legit entrepreneurs. And so Mindbridge came out of, um, first of all, I had experience in large companies, in smaller tech, in startups. I did my own first business at 17 years old. Um, I was trading stock at 16. Um, and then what happened is that, like my father, more or less, when I was in California doing a startup, I uh, kind of fell in love with a Canadian woman. Um, and then she was like, hey, uh, I like you, but San Francisco suck. I'm like, really? It doesn't seem to suck that much to me. And then she dragged me into Ottawa. So that's how I ended up in Canada. Um, <laughs> yeah, uh, I was that young and in love. Um, I mean, not together anymore, but um, yeah. So that's how my bridge got started. It's out of, again, circumstances. And I, when I left California, one of the deals was, okay, I, you know, she made me like, look, the startup thing, it's over, okay? Because you work seven days a week and I don't know you. So if we have to be together, we have to spend time together. I was like, okay. So I said, I'll never do a startup again. When I moved to Canada about 10 years ago, we we're not together. I did another startup. Um, <laughs> <laughs> um, and now my goal is that I want to, which was stupid of me, like how dare I don't do startups, like I'm so, I, I love it so much, but, um, and actually Mindbridge, so to go to Mindbridge, it's actually not a startup. Part of that phase of, hey, winter is cold, I'm going to stay in bed with that beautiful girl, and every time I look at her, there's a baby that comes out. Um, I, I, I try to be a corporate boy, like I try to, like, you know, fit in an organization. And I was there for six years and a half. And then so Mindbridge is not a startup, it's a start out. So if you think about, so I, I, I always want to know everything about everything. So I studied an industry, which is financial data analysis. And then a lot of things went wrong and there was the financial crisis and Bernie Madoff blew up at our faces. And I got really pissed off because coming from Brazil and France, I was exposed to a lot of injustice uh, on myself, on my family. I saw death almost twice by the age of 12. Um, so people train you know, guns at each other, and just injustice and fraudsters just really irk me. Um, so what happened is that I tried to have my employer fix their shit, and you know they really didn't get their shit together, so I left. Uh, and if you look at startups, they always have a higher return. Um, you know startups. Salesforce is a startup of Siebel. Workday is a startup of PeopleSoft. The founders of Salesforce and Workday worked before or got acquired before and they didn't like the direction of the product and they were industry expert. So they started with connections. They know where the market was. They know where the client was. All they do is rebuild the shit, right? Rebuild the stack. And that's what MindBridge was about. So I waited actually years for MindBridge and MindBridge now evolved beyond the space where I was in because what we realized is financial data analysis and fraud busting is actually super hard in analytics and in intelligence from data. So we realized that by solving this, we can actually solve a ton of other problems in data. So MyBridge delivers intelligence from data. That's what they do now. And the name is for, so I'm being honest, when DeepMind got acquired for, by Google for 400 million pounds, I was like, what? No client, no customer, 50 people, $650 million payday? That's interesting. So my startup will be called Mind Something. So then we talk about it, bridging the gap between human and artificial intelligence, which at the time, five years ago, people were like, no, AI is going to take over everything. And I was like, mm, not really. I think what's going to happen is like bicycles, motorcycles, computers, we're just going to learn how to use it and pair ourselves with it and achieve higher productivity. So my co-founder and me came up and one of our board members uh, came up with the term MindBridge. All right. What a great story. Oh, by the way, you mentioned something briefly, uh, the story of how you started your first business at 17. And you actually told us that story right before we started. And yeah, I like that story. So maybe you could expand a little bit on that. Okay. Um, so one thing to know is that I was always what people call a difficult kid. 
when the teacher will say, so I was bored at school, I will just miss all the mark and just pass, just the last minute just to pass the class. I was really bored. Um, and also some people say that I had learning disability because I will argue on everything. Like it was just not, if you, if you come with, to me and my co-founder is the same way and he's like the age of my father, but he's the same way. If you come to me with a baked cake, I say, what the fuck is that? Sorry, um, I say, what is that cake about? Um, <laughs> Um, but, but if you tell me, hey, let's make a cake, and here's the ingredients we could use, what do you want to use? I'm like, well, let's test this, let's test that, and let's make a cake. So I'm very self-directed, and so um, I was always like with a mind on my own, and then at the same time, I was super nerdy. Like my cousin, rest his soul, that was in California, um, showed me at 12 years old how to build a computer. And then I was like sold, like it was just like, uh, when my father bought like a blazing fast 166 megahertz PC with two gig of storage, I'm that old. Um, I, I was like on it all over the time. And then my cousin had a business in the tailoring business. He would ship with a lot of his other commerciants, other commerce in the street. They would sell in Paris. So I grew up in Paris and um, they would sell their suits all over the world. Sometimes they would ship them. And then the admin were spending hours building an invoice on Excel 97, which includes shipping rates and tax and, and exchange rate of the day. So I basically, I don't know how the whole thing started, but I basically decided to code in VB5, I think, or VB6, um, to call MSN Money at the time to get the exchange rate on, online with the 33.6 Bodes modem, you know, type of thing, and then calculate automatically the invoice in like, one minute. So then he liked it. And then for the work I did, it actually gave me 5,000 francs, which is like $1,500. And uh, I was like, that's interesting. I just had fun. And someone's paying me a minimum wage at 16 or 17 years old to just have fun with a computer. And I said, well, how about you keep half of the money or everything? But what, do you have other friends that need that? Can you send them to me? And my thought was like, if I can find 10 of his friends to buy it, that's like 50,000 francs. I was like, that's pretty cool. That's like more than my dad makes in the whole year. So that's how I started selling templates on Excel. Um, and, you know, I use it to play on the stock market and pay most of my studies with the help of my dad. All right. So your business sense is kind of genetic. No, you know. <laughs> I, I, I don't have a business sense. Look, when you are seven years old and your mother at the end of the month looks at you and your sister and say, hey, guys, it's time of this month. We're going to pick the uh, peas royale. It's only special, only once in a month, sometimes we do that. Have you been good guys? And they're like, yeah. And it's like, here's the peas. And what you don't know is that she doesn't need that night. So you're hungry. All right. Uh, and now, okay, we talked about the story of MindRidge, how it was built. But now let's say, let's say I'm really stupid and you want to explain to me what does MindBridge, MindBridge do very simply? Yeah. What, exactly, yeah. That's MindBridge is becoming a protocol of trust between machines and humans. So if you think about today, we dump a bunch of data everywhere in enterprise, in governments, all over the place. And when we're trying to find the version of the truth, 60% of CFOs on Wall Street say that they don't have confidence in the financial data they report to the stock market. I repeat, 60% of CFOs, who by the way can go to jail for that, do not believe they're providing accurate financials on the capital markets which are where your savings of your parents and the economy pours trillions to create jobs. You see the problem here? So since the beginning, that's what Mavis tried to, to address. And then what we realized is that it's beyond CFO financial reports. People in organization, I don't know what happened when things went south, but like to get the truth and fight through fake news and all of that, everywhere people is faking it. I mean, I know why. Like when you have the leaders, like the chairman of NASDAQ is the biggest fraudster in the world. Everyone fights for their own after. 
when the president of a country will not name, say that he's proud and because he's smart, he doesn't pay taxes, it pro propagates down. Sorry for the Americans in the room. So uh, it just propagates down. If the top behaves like that, everyone behaves like that. When it's the sales guy that has quota to make another thousand dollars, he's going to say, no, I made more sales than that. So like really for us, trust is becoming paramount to civil society. Rome felt apart because of that and we're trying to stop that, but that's another topic. All right. So uh, is your activity limited to finance or do you do? No. No? no? Okay. We have projects in capital markets, corporate finance, uh, governance, um, and payments as well. All right. Thank you. And um, well, another thing is like AI, AI right now is uh, it's kind of a buzzword. Everyone talks about it. Like yeah. it's a word that's thrown around all the time. Like what, what is true? What is truly AI? Is it machine learning? Is it deep learning? What it's kind not of, of that. Okay. Um, it's none of that, and this is really frustrating. So um, when I was 17 or 16, and I had thousands of francs, uh, before I had thousands of francs, I used to skip class to go play in Saber Cafe, which was essentially the place, the holy place in the whole town, and the only place in the town that you had internet. And what I'll do is I'll go play the game called StarCraft, uh, which, by the way, if you look at uh, the exchange on Twitter between me and Toby, we believe, and I believe too, that I learned more about business from StarCraft than any business book because of how you build resources and orchestrate it. But so anyhow, so I'm a very competitive guy and I hated running out of money that I couldn't play online against people. So I did something and put a few common lines and I played also Counter-Strike a lot. And there's that something, I don't know if you see the slide, the next one, but when you're out of money and you play against someone here, how do you call that? Who's the other player? It's an NPC. Does anyone know what NPC stands for? Please, someone, someone raise their hand right now. There's a free beer. Holy smokes, this is the first room where people know what NPC is from in a year. Yes, thank you very much. Give them beers for free, it's on me. Um, so, non-player characters. So what is non-player character? Yeah, and what is a non-player character? It's an AI, right? Is there machine learning in there? No. Is there deep learning in there? No, none of that. But that's AI, right? It's playing against you and beating and kicking your ass until you become good enough that you can beat it and then you go fight with other humans. The other thing also is that, because I knew a bit of scripting, there's that wonderful command line, place CTS pawn, place counter-strike pawn. So think about this, a rebellious, lazy-ass, brash-spoken, curly-haired, French-Brazilian guy in some cyber cafe of Levallois-Perret, in 99, was placing bots on the map to train at shoot, doing headshots on counter-strike. And then goes online and with Voyapi, scream with a, you know, teenager voice, hey, you motherfucker, and then like <laughs> fights with other people around the world. And yet in, in corporations, it's only 20 years after that they wake up to the concept of bots, NPCs, and their utility. So AI is a set of, the, the reason why is because in Toronto in 2013, I think, or 12, there was that guy that, you know, the, the, the godfather of deep learning. I hate when they say godfathers of AI. No, they're not godfathers of AI. They're godfathers of deep learning, which is one technique that has a lot of hype right now, which we use as well, but it's not everything. So that AI for me is this, is every time you have a machine that starts behaving in a way that a human could, whether it's coded like an old school game, or whether it's adaptive because it has deep learning in it and other techniques, or whether it's precise because it has better machine learning algorithms, all of that can be AI. It's all of that and none of that, right? Great. And uh, okay, timely question. Yesterday in the newspaper, I read that you, you hired uh, Alex Benet, who was working at the Canadian government and who was responsible for uh, basically modernizing the, technical, the technological infrastructure in there. So yeah, I, I'm, I feel like I'm talking about the sports transfer, like or something. How did it happen? How, 
Well, Are you happy I, about the signing? Sincerely, I don't feel we hired him. I feel he hired us. Oh, really? Yeah. Um, the guy is... Uh, I mean, so if you read this book, like Open Gourmet, like, he, I mean, first of all, I interacted with him from the opposite end, right? I was like the entrepreneur that came and said, hey, government, get your shit act together. And I arrived to talk to that guy, I had my guns loaded, and the guy was already shooting at other people inside. And I was like, this guy is legit. That's the thing, I, like, this is the only thing I care for. When I want to invest in an entrepreneur, my only question is, is he legit, is she legit? And most of the time these days, there's more she legit than, than before, which is awesome. And then when I met Alex, it's like, Holy shit, he's an exec in the government, but he's legit. He's not a suit. He's not, you know, a politician. Actually, he was stressed of being there, I think. And then the way it happened is that, you know, you bump into each other and he's like, you know what? I'm thinking of leaving and I don't want to take that high paying job in New York or in Toronto. And I'd really want to, you know, he had his own agenda of, you know, he came from open text, a tech startup that grew a lot. And he really wants to make Canada strong. And you know, he felt like you know, going the government, he's done a lot of things, but also I could feel that he was looking for what's next, right? And so I introduced him to other people. And I don't know how that all of a sudden he started talking to my team and like I went on vacation, I come back, we hired him and he signed up. I was like, what happened? <laughs> I was literally in Cape Cod with my two daughters at the beach watching the seals and stuff. I say, oh, by the way, Alex signed up. I'm like, what? Like, what happened here? I should go on vacation more often. Like, uh, so yeah, it was like, I think it felt really much like he picked, like he was on a mission to pick an organization to do what he did before at OpenText, while at the same time, you know, having accomplished, I think, an amazing job where he was. And I recommend him, I would never lasted six months in the government. Like, he must have been very resilient and patient. Well, since you say that, since you say he picked you, you didn't pick him, why do you think he picked you? Like, why Mindbridge? Well, I think um, because it's not a startup anymore, it's a scale-up. And I think because you saw what we did in the government. So if you look at MindBridge, the first central bank in the world to use AI ever was the Bank of England with MindBridge. If you look payment agency worldwide, the first payment agencies to analyze liquidity ratios with AI, Payments Canada, MindBridge. If you go to three of the top seven auditor generals in the world and some tax agencies that started experimenting with AI or bought hundreds of thousands of hours of AI software, MindBridge. So he got, I'm sure he, he must have heard from other people from other countries that if there's one startup that gets governance and not government, governance, and is legit and has a real tech with a real management team and a real business. Because here's the thing, we had VCs that were begging us to, take a, to invest in us to move to California. And when they look at MindBridge, they it was, it's, the AI thing is just the enabler. It's a real solid business that was transitioned from the startup phase to the scale-up phase by an organizational architect, which is my co-founder and the CEO of MindBridge, with a precision and an intent that you, don't, you seldom see in a, in a startup world. So I think he felt that he, there was, because he's, he's not a small guy, I mean, he's in both senses, I'm making fun of him here. <laughs> but I, I think I'm going to get beat up when I go back to the office. But um, like he's, he's, I mean, the guy has done a few things in his life. When you're like, you know, Minister of Digital Innovation thing, he's not going to come for a five-man shop, right? So there is, I think there's an existing infrastructure in MindBridge, both in terms of business discipline, and the fact also, I'll be very honest, uh, we succeeded despite me. Like, let's be very honest, if you look at the culture in tech, it's a lot of bros that are very opinionated, brash, outspoken, like me. And what I, one of the first things early on that happened is that I decided that that's not going to be just another bro culture company, so I'm not going to run the show. I'm going to, as soon as possible, have a tenured, experienced entrepreneur that gets me, but gets 
that he needs to build a real business. And that's what happened with Eli. Okay, great. And now a question for the people who are interested in AI in the room. Like, if you want to work in AI, what do you need? Uh, do you need a college degree? What, 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 like, yeah, exactly. What, what do you need? I'm not sure I'm best placed to answer that question. My CTO, Robin, will probably tell you if you want to work in data science, uh, here's the thing you need to pursue. Look, right now, MindBridge, we, have a, we, 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 we discovered something that makes us very restless and upset. If you think about diversity in tech, in, in woman parity, um, tech is 70-30. 30, 70% 30, man, 30% woman. Do anyone knows what is the parity with AI? It's, it's one to nine. It's one to nine, 11%. So we, we couldn't believe the stat. So right now, we were thinking ourselves like, what is the skill for, so we ask universities across Canada and some in the US, so how can we fix that? Like, where do we need to invest? What can we do? And out of the discussion, we realized that whatever we do is gonna take nine years, the time to train the people, encourage more women to be like, damn, I'm building another startup in nine years. Like, it's not going to work for me. It's not the work for my CEO who's even, I call him like, he's like 60 going on 16. Like, he's even more restless than me and he's even more aggressive than me. So when we like to fix problems and then, uh, I don't know who in the team came up with that term. I think it was Jennifer, actually, a uh, marketing manager. She came up with the program called Hero, with H-E-R. And what we realized is that if we actually, we could have women, and this is not just women, in general for anyone, we could fast-track them by having them do internships in data science team as leaders. That way they don't need to learn how to code. Sorry, I'm going against the school here, but like you basically put them in, teach them leadership skills and a basic enough understanding of how data science work and key tools inside of it so that they can lead. So we are basically fast tracking a, a cohort right now to become within three years managers of data science team without having learned how to code because women sometimes just are not represented enough in the code in engineering. So for us, to me, AI is like any engineering thing. You Look, I have a very good friend who was the coach for the national team of tennis of the USA. And he never won a Grand Chelem. So he, he really changed my mindset about, because I said, dude, if, I'm, if you're training me in my field and you've never done what I'm doing, I'm not looking at you with any credibility or no street care to me. And it's so actually, the skills to be a great coach has nothing to do than being a champion. And actually, the sign of a great champion is to be humble. And he changed my mind on that a lot. So the first thing to, I think, if you want to get into the AI space, coding is not the prerequisite. There's many other jobs around it, product management, marketing, and others. But if you want absolutely to learn how to build AI expert system, well, um, some people will tell you, you must learn about you know, Scala and Java and things like that, and R and Python. And there's other people around to say, you know what, soon AI system will be able to code themselves. So what is the definition of building an AI platform if you have subsystem building themselves? With mutating genes and mutating AI expert system, that's pretty much where we're going towards. There's actually startups right now in Silicon Valley We have self-generating code, right? So just think about that. In the age we're moving, you know, uh, be careful what you pick to go in. One thing that will always be required more in the future is human, empathic, compassionate leadership out of a place of vulnerability and understanding. And that, there's no AI that is going to have that. Right, thank you for, your, for the answer. What was your, your motivation to start in this tech sector? As you told me before, like, it's really hard. Yeah, I got pissed off. Um, <laughs> so there's one friend, um, two friends actually said, if you ask people close to me, you know, this is someone has those crazy ideas, nonstop ideas, uh, doing business with him is like holding a tiger by the tail. Um, 
and all those things. And they'll say one thing too, is like, if someone says he's going to try to do something, don't get in the way, it might happen. And I decide to do things when I get obsessed about something or it really pisses me off every day. Um, and that's what happened. Like I was an industry insider that saw a lot of bad stuff happening. And I give, let me give you an example of what I call bad stuff, okay? One of the, start, the, one of the work experience for me that was transformational was when years before I saw the whole Bernie Madoff debacle and I saw so the other people we don't talk about that are not Bernie Madoff, but are like, oh, by the way, fraudsters, 90% of them plus male, white, I repeat, over 90% of fraudsters, men of power, white, male. And when an executive on Wall Street steals $11 million and get caught, army of lawyers go, bad boy, pay fine, pay a million dollar, he's walking, he's fine dining air all day long. The bail is paid out right away. Fast forward a few years, I'm working in another startup in the retail space, and I hear the case of cash and go, you know, like all those uh, cash and go business, paycheck, end of money market, things like that. And I hear the case of that employee, I'm not going to share her name, who stole $66,000, $76,000 US. She's going to jail for 13 years. She was behind the counter, she was skimming money. But here's the interesting part. Why was she doing that? Because her husband, womanizer, drug dealer, was beating her up to bring more money home. She gets caught, confessed right away, didn't want to do that, she's still in jail today. Where's the justice in that? Small guys take 50 bucks out of a cashier, they're in jail. The guys in suits, walk free. So there was a few cases like that that really upset me. And ultimately, you need to protect both. When you must, no one wakes up in the morning and say, I'm going to be a great thruster today. I'm going to screw the whole country for 63 billion. Bernie Madoff, when he was being inspected, confessed that he thought he was going to get caught five years before he got caught. And he felt relief about it. And they walked away without catching him. No human being watched himself in the mirror and says, I'm a fraudster and I'm proud of it. I mean, maybe some of you guys, I don't know. but. Um, yeah, that nice looking guy over there. Um, so, so you have to protect, I came from a place of, and that's why actually Montreal, Montreal got us the first check of, of a million dollar to invest in us, Real Venture team. And one of the things with Real Venture, which is very unusual, they always have several angles of approach. One of the partner, which is a very charitable soul, said what he liked about us is that whether it's a big executive that just is greedy or just simply is competitive. Remember, sometimes fraudsters, they're people that see their colleagues doing better and they want to catch up. It's not that they're greedy, it's just competitiveness. And then he says, what he liked about us is that we're going to, in average, it takes 32 months to catch insider fraud. And with us, it's going to be like that identified before it spiral and become um, insider fraud and things like that. And he liked the humanitarian aspect of preventing humans against their own poor morals from making wrong choices. Um, so yeah, that's the whole story why my memory is it's like, it was, a, it was years of frustration in the industry that was broken. Actually, there's a slide at the end I showed you. Like, the, in, and we started in the audit space because it's just completely broken. Like a lot of scandals, um, yeah. Okay, and uh, well, when you started, how did you, you were the founder, you had one associate, right? What? You had one. Uh, no, we had a founding team of 24 people. So, okay. um, no, but like, let's be real. Okay, sure, I'm the one that incorporated the business. But remember what I said earlier. One of the reasons why I think MyBridge is so successful right now, actually that's the book yeah, that made me start the whole thing. Um, so, okay, so the very beginning, first of all, I didn't want, I, I was still married at the time and I had promised not to do a startup again. And so on the path of my ex-wife trying to convince me to be careful, 
I went back to San Francisco and I said, okay, I'm going to do two things. I'm going to call the top leaders in the industry and pitch the idea to them. And I told her, and then before that, I'm going to go to Silicon Valley again because if there was anyone doing this already, I hate competition. I'm too competitive to have competition. I get nasty. Like, I get very competitive. My family knows since I'm eight years old not to play Monopoly with the guy. He will, <laughs> he will scheme you and he'll expect you to walk away with zero. I was so frustrated when my sister and my dad said, okay, you won, you have 60% of the thing. You still have money. True story. I would yell at them and say, you play until the end. I needed to take every dollar out of their hand. So I said, if I see any startup doing anything with machine learning in financial data analysis, I'm out, I'm not starting. So we went there, and on the way back, I picked up that book from Peter Thiel that talked about zero to one. And I didn't know I was a, an, a, an, believe it or not, I didn't know I was an entrepreneur. Like, I, I, it seemed all accidental until then. And then there's a page, I don't know if you have it in the next year there, there's like a bell curve inverted of characters as to what makes a good founder, who's a founder or not. And then I was reading it, and you know, he talks about the abrasive guy, nerdy, know-it-all, that talks over other people, and he's a bit of a jerk. I was like, oh shit. So I, the last part, I, was like, I didn't know what jerk means, so I Googled translation French, English, like, oh yeah, I've been called like that. Um, they're working on that still today. And then, um, and so I came back, I was like, okay, well maybe then I should quit that job and start something. And then I called, the major institution, and I said, okay, I'm going to pitch to them, and my ex said, they say your idea is shit, and after, can we go back and you'll find a job in the government? True story. She wanted me to have a job in the government. And I pitched it to them, and they said, oh, it makes sense. So then I incorporated and started, and what I did is the first thing I did, before I incorporated, I reached out to Eli, um, and Eli, who became the CEO, in his legendary, very easygoing way to do things, he, the first thing he said when I tell him, say, hey, I'm going to do machine learning. He's like, yeah, that's a good field. And everything, blah, 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 blah. I said, and would you like to join me? And he answered, no. And then, I, because to me, no means not now. Um, <laughs> I basically went on a mission, and other people too. So there's, there's four types of luck in life. I don't know if you know that. If you don't, Google it, four types of luck. Um, and one of the two types, I, I didn't, I mean, I discovered all of that while I started being mentored and coached while I was growing my bridge. There's two types of luck I do very well. I'm a shaker. So one type of luck people can have is when there's hustle so hard in a place that they shake the whole ground and the dust lift up and there's maybe, because you shake things up, all of a sudden people collide, ideas collide, people get together, and that's how the founding team of MyBridge goes truly to the team effort. Eli had two to three of people he was playing with doing NLP, machine learning. He wanted to do something in capital market, and I had two to three people trying to do financial data analysis. And then out of me having that you know, problem of hearing, of hearing not now when people say no, um, I kept bugging him, bugging him, bugging him, and then he came and then we joined forces. So it was like nine months on my own, but working in parallel um, on all different things. And then you know, we, when we get together, that's really when things got real. And what was the what was the criteria for choosing him? Like and and the other the other yeah, partners. Yeah. So actually, um, about a couple of months ago, I listened to a podcast from the founder of AngelList, who nailed exactly what I was talking about. I used to tell everyone I've been screwed many times. Okay, like I one startup, I worked two years, and the co-founder worked five years even on it, and the board completely screwed us on the deal. I worked two years, seven days a week, and I got nothing at the end. Um, and other people who still money, my family as well. So one thing for me that was super important is that it's someone with a heart in the right place, the head on the shoulder, but he's a bit of a dreamer looking up front and with high energy. 
Um, so I will always talk about heart here, not in the ass, and head on the shoulders, and you know, a compassionate soul. And so when you look at the podcast of Angelis, he talked about high integrity, high energy people. Because if you're with someone with high energy and not perfect at integrity, you get fucked. Mm. He'll outrun you, you get fucked. Especially if you're about to give him the keys of the mm. car and call him the CEO. Mm. And if you have someone that has high integrity but low energy, nothing's going to happen. But if you find someone that is high integrity and high energy as a partner, usually magic happens. If yourself, you're high integrity, high energy. Uh, the guy you're talking about is Naval Ravikant, yes. right? Oh, yeah, yeah, great guy. You should follow him on Twitter. Post great stuff. The, the uh, podcasts are pretty cool. Yeah, yeah, true. He, he went on Joe Rogan and everything. Pretty cool. And now, oh, so you recently... And also, I was introduced to him also. One other thing I was looking for is a track record of mentoring others because I wanted... Basically, I was, I was, you know, I started, I was like, I'm going to be the CEO and stuff. And then one of my coaches said, so great, you're starting a business. Finally, you've been talking about it for years. So who's going to be the CEO? And I'm like, well, me. It's like, oh. I'm like, what do you mean, oh? It's like, well, I was like, what well? It's like, you want to hear it? I was like, yeah, I think you'll hate it. I'm like, what? So, well, I don't have money to hire a CEO. And then that's how it started. And then it, it started like a joke. It's like, a French Brazilian guy meets a Jewish guy and a Muslim guy celebrating Christmas. You know, that, that, that's literally, <laughs> that's Canadian success, only in Canada. And basically, that's how I met him, yeah. And we partied, and then there was like a bunch of young entrepreneurs below 35, and there was that guy above 55, and he was outrunning us with jokes until 1.30 in the morning. So that was him. Great. And, uh, okay, so you got to the million from the Canadian uh, no, government? 15 million from the Canadian government. Okay, okay, well, yeah, that's right, that's right. Um, that was just this year, though. Yeah, yeah, but to date we raised about 45 million. Exactly, yeah, exactly. So, yeah, how did that go? How did you, what was the process? How did you convince them? So I, look again, what I said, succeeding despite me, like I only got involved in the fundraising until a certain point where the CEO needs to pitch, right? I got involved at a certain point, the the friend and family round, the seed round, and the seed two. And at that series A, I was not involved at all because the CEO, by that time, mastered the whole field, had a whole team, had a CTO and everything. So since series A, I was not involved. I mean, no, that's not true. Okay. And every funding, because on the board and founder, like they go through the whole process. And before usually the final thing, the new investors want to talk to me. And, you know, so I involved a bit, but realistically, I was very involved at the beginning, of course. Um, but not since Series A heavily. Like at the Series B, it was like a 30-minute phone call when all everything was done. Due diligence was done. Um, so it was like, it felt very special that, you know, people were pitching your idea of three years, four years before and grew it much better than you would and were able to attract all that money. It's a very big compliment. Uh, but at the beginning, I can tell you, people don't know how to do fundraising. Is anyone fundraising here? No. Um, it's a very unique art, and that's a longer discussion than five minutes. Um, but you have to understand one thing is that uh, fundraising is not always about the technical. It's a lot about your personality and what you say and how you behave, more importantly. And it's an act of gaining credibility and showing traction. And traction is not always sales, but it's preferable, but it's not always sales. Thank you. So basically, the, when you fundraise, they buy the entrepreneur, not the project. Uh, it, it depends, but I can tell you, I bullied my first investors. <laughs> What does that mean? That means what I said. I bullied them. Okay. Like, I harassed them. I called them. I, mm -hmm. I, I called them names. I, uh, I, I, I public shamed them. I applied peer pressure. 
I'll tell you, like, uh, and then half of them were like, oh, let's, let's just give money so he walks away. And then, the, and then now they're like, yeah, I totally saw it coming. I was like, come on, dude. Um, so, so I'll give you an example. The last, in the first front of family round, there was two guys that were on the fence. And what I did, I applied a technique that fraudsters use. And so I learned a lot from fraudsters because they know how to manipulate the human mind and their flaws. So I use it for good. So one technique I use, for example, is peer pressure. So there was a guy and another one that were like, you know, both trying to impress each other because they're big shot in their industry and stuff. And they both said, we'll invest for sure. But the thing is that I know is that both of them had not cut the check. So what did I do? And I said, well, you know, Peter, are you still coming? Because I mean, if you have financial cash flow problems these days, it's okay. In front of the other guys, like, well, so of course not. I said, I'll invest and invest. I said, cool. Okay. Because right now I'm closing guys, you know, it's like, and Mike, I mean, I know you're not coming anyway, right? It's like, no, of course he's coming. I'm coming. It's like, oh, okay. Right. So it's like, and it was in front of 50 people in front of the press. So um, you have to be sometimes, I look, the, the one thing with me, and I'm sorry for all the people that are pissed off, a lot of them forgive me and laugh. My partners always look like, how do you get away with that? My, like, sometimes I do the, this, I poke at the eyes, and some of people have to forgive me most of the time. Um, but um, yeah, it's not always what you think. Look, when you have nothing, when you have nothing, what are you going to sell? You have to convince people. Right. And now it seems obvious that the AI thing, you know how many times I've been called a fluke because I talked about AI the first year and a half, no one in Ottawa believed AI was a thing. So how do you get funded when no people don't acknowledge the biggest revolution to come is not happening. You have to be very determined and very, very methodical. All right. Thank you. And, um, so far, what has been the biggest challenge, uh, as an entrepreneur in your career, what, what has been the worst thing that's ever happened to you? Getting divorced? No, seriously, guys, I asked you the question earlier. You think it's easy? There's count for every success story out there, there's countless of guys that when depression, went broke, or, and the mental health toll, we, no one talks about this. And I was never more, I became so resilient out of every time I failed and learned so much. But quite frankly, guys, you have to ask yourself why you're doing it. So I'll give you... I can't share all the thing because this is recorded publicly, but uh, and some VCs in the Valley will not touch entrepreneurs with a 10-foot pole if they're doing this for the wrong reasons. And they're right. You have, you have to ask yourself, why would you take that level of risk and why would you do it for so long and, take, and, and put yourself out there so much? Well, I'll tell you my thing. I don't have, so first, I was... Um, white guy in the black town of Brazil with a French father, which made me a target of humans. Then I was a Latino-looking, non-French-speaking Brazilian in the middle of Paris, in the middle of French people, which made me a target and sent me twice to the hospital of bullies smashing my head against walls. Then at seven years old, I was a white guy from France in the middle of Guadeloupe, West Indies, full of black people, Afro-Americans, Afro-French, whatever you want to call Afro, um, descendant of slaves because of white people from France, who saw a white guy showing up from France who decided to beat him up and see how he reacts when they slap his neck and turn red. Then I arrived at 11 years old with a, with a Guadeloupe accent, patois, in Van in France, very white person, and they saw a guy that looked like a bambula, so they decided to beat him up a bit more. And then when I moved to France, because the thing was getting out of, uh, to Paris with my father, because the thing was getting out of control, I would come back home with bloodied face because people smashed me in glasses, then they discovered that my father had Jewish origin in the middle of suburbia of Paris full of Arabs. And then they said, let's beat up the Jewish guy. And then, so 
how do, you, how do you think my mindset was towards humans? I had zero trust. And so I had that propensity to take charge and fix things on my own and not rely on anyone. To a point it was a sickness, right? So, and now I only discovered that in the last three years of how much this has defined me. Uh, because I started looking at, you know, having mentors and having my partner who is a serial entrepreneur who understands and gets me because he's made some of the mistakes I made and is able to talk to me and I respect him and I trust him because we've been through the battle together. I discovered that there was things early on that happened to me that it was inevitable that the only place I could be doing what I do is in a past where I carve my own path. But let's be real, how many people have a life like that? Why would you, you know, to me, I was too rebellious to be an organization guy. I was a corporate boy for six years and a half. And when I left the company, people took a breath and said, finally left. And I was like, well, guys, I thought we were having fun here, we're playing. And it's like, dude, you, I mean, everyone that worked for you went on stress leave. The management team, half of it, like, just couldn't wait for you to go back on the field. Too intense, dude, right? So you have to ask yourself, like, why are you doing this? I'm gonna, uh, I'm gonna ask myself why I'm doing it. Um, okay, next question is my favorite question. Uh, it, let's say you restart from zero, no money, and you have one year to make a million dollar. How do you do it? Which industry do you pick? Uh, do you do a startup? Like, what do you do? Money is useless, guys. Like, um, again, okay, so you won't be rich. Great. So to start a venture right now, if I had to do it, I would not do it probably from North America. There's so many growing markets everywhere in the world with a lower cost structure to start a business. That being said, Canada is awesome for that. And I would start it probably in the um, life enhancement business. So let me explain to you what that means. Um, there's countless professionals out there that have poor tax planning, poor investment strategy. Government is not going to pay your retirement. You have to be self-started. And there's countless professions um, that don't have even you know, benefits coverage and things like that. And in financial services, it's all tied together. So I will place myself at the intersection, like MindBridge actually, intersection of data science, which is a growing field, tremendous problem in governance and auditing, and then a rarity of data scientists to address it. So I will look for those intersection points between different industries and start there, and ideally something that touches capital. So life savings, tax planning, there's a lot of different spaces to do that. Um, also, you know, like crypto has been pretty good to me. Um, but I would not, it's a very difficult space to be successful. Um, and I would look at, you know, I would look at a joke that people say, where is the best place to start a business? Right now, one of the entrepreneurs I, I like the most, he makes me laugh every time, is Oleg from People to the Eye. He has his office in front of Salesforce. He just raised $60 million. I met him a few years ago when he started, and he says, I'm just going to take Salesforce down. He says, like, they're doing it wrong. They're doing CRM wrong. Um, I'm going to do it better. And he's succeeding. So sometimes you don't have to reinvent the wheel. Just look at who's milking a market and just go after that. Like, that's the best because there's, there's people spending tons of money in that space already for a poor solution, a bad solution. Hell, that's so easy. And um, what do you think of the AI scene in Canada, Ottawa, Montreal? We have a lot of academics, but what do you think of the industry? How do, yeah, what's, what's its potential? It's small. It's, it's small. very small. It's Canada, 30 million people. It's mm. small as hell. If you like, the, the moment... Like, it's small, it's cute, it's a family, it's cousins, you know? Like, no, seriously, let me give you an example. Element AI, the head of design was a friend from, from Ottawa. The JS was on our board and part of the investment committee of us. Um, you know, 
like I know them, like I text Jeff, the CEO of MNTI, like he was in the pitch room where we were pitching Reaventure and supporting the idea of MindBridge. So it's family. Like I go to Toronto, everyone is a degree of separation. Like Canada, the wonderful, and I'll tell you what I, I love about not just the AI, but the Canadian tech and the Canadian ecosystem is as follows. I arrive in New York, you know, incubator or something, and I walk there, hey New Yorker, sorry, I'm about to, you know, um, and you arrive there and the guys are like that, and the one's like, what you doing? He's like, oh, something, something, something. He's not telling you. And it's like a competitiveness in the air that is suffocating. I said, hey, I'm just saying hi. You know, like, hi. And the viewer was like, he's going to steal my stuff. He's going to, you know. Entrepreneurs compete with each other, actually, for capital, for clients, for press attention. And you feel it because Americans and New Yorkers are like thick-skinned, competitive people. And it prevents some level of help each other, like at Fresh Founders that we have, where, for example, I have some fresh founders, founders that come and say, hey, I'm looking for a badass salesperson, can you help me? He knows I'm hiring salespeople too, but he still feels that he can trust me to ask. And guess what? Affording someone that I know would not be a cultural fit at Manbridge because it's a different market, but I know with him might succeed. I sent investors back and forth. I sent even leads sometimes. Um, there's a certain friendliness to the Canadian attitude of things of, and then, and I'm very sorry I'm going to swear, I just said the F word without the whole world, but one of, of our advisors and members run jails. He was a delinquent teenager who ended up running jails and shaping policy in the US and Canada on incarceration. And I asked him, okay, when I met that guy, I was like, oh my God, the wealth of human knowledge on this guy must be incredible. So I, I just had to have breakfast with him. So I met him, go breakfast with him, and ask him, okay, tell me, tell me, tell me, tell me. He knows, like, I do that sometimes. Like, and then, but it's like, okay, okay, okay. So, so who are the, you know, who are the people in jail? You know, like, I don't want to go there. So like, what's going on there? I say, well, first, people go to jail. There's also religious people, but when they leave, they usually stop. And ask why. And the answers were fascinating. And then the other thing, say, okay, okay, okay. What's the difference between Americans and Canadians? And that's what I always like to ask everyone. And then he told me, well, this is like that. When a Canadian guy, and he says, you measure people. So by the way, you measure, you know, guys' loyalty when they have everything. Like when a guy is in a position of power and money, let's see how loyal he's going to be to his wife and you to his partner. Sure. So he says, you can judge people in their success, attitude to success. So a Canadian is successful. He's like, hi, I've done well. I hope you too. And then an, an American is successful. She's laughing already. An American that is successful says like, I'm doing fucking, uh, very, very, I'm going great. What the F is wrong with you? And I don't know if it's true or not, but you know, um, that I feel that the Canadians have that cap of social fluidity out of better manners. Or, and by the way, the thing I hated growing Mindbridge is that they have that good manners. So Martha Maccabe, who is uh, like one uh, medals and is the head of uh, Head to Head, is the CEO of Head to Head, former athlete, she pairs athletes with teenagers. She told me that story that she was training to win and her hope, she said like that, I was about to train three days before competing and I went to train and I could feel every, ten, every muscle fibers in my body. I was ready, I dive in the water and I just give my all and I come out of my water and she turns to her coach and she asks, how was it, what's the time? And then he says, well, um, I don't know, there's something wrong with the clock. It says, why, why, what does it say? It says it's shit. And sometimes the snowflake thing is like people like arrived this morning in my office and I lost three hours yesterday because a stupid password of IT, whatever. And I see my IT guy is like, dude, I hate you this morning. And then the HR person, true says, so long, don't use that word here. That's a bit abrasive. And I look at her, 
Brett, can you tell her you know I'm joking? Say, I know he's joking. Okay, fine. Mm -hmm. You know, it's like, so, so sometimes it's nice, but sometimes you have to like, come on, guess, uh, you know, a bit of bravado. Last question. What is your advice for future entrepreneurs like me, like people in the, world, in the room? Is it don't do it? Because... <laughs> um, yeah, I'll tell you first not to do it. I, I'll, I'll be very honest. Uh, I'll tell you, I, I don't think you know what you're signing up for. However, I know you're not going to listen to me. Uh, the same way, I, if you're an entrepreneur, you're not going to listen to the no. You can say, oh, he's saying not now. Um, so if you have to start a business, the first thing is you have to ask yourself why. Like, is it just because it's the fashion and everyone now has startup incubators everywhere and it's fashionable and thing? Or is this something that I will aspire to? Is it just to gain freedom? Is it, I'll tell you me, I didn't mind being accountable. And being accountable is not what you think. Being accountable means not giving an F about what people think about you and putting yourself out there because you're going to be judged and all of that. I didn't mind that. And I ultimately I had a, a, an obsession and belief that people didn't get something was broken. And I was willing to be accountable that I'm going to put myself out there and I'm going to let other people come. And trust me, it was hard. Like people in my own team, like the way I behave, I, I'm sorry, I'm going to be authentic. I'm not a suit. I'm not a suit and I'm a rebellious guy, and I'm a colorful character. Anytime in my life I try to change that, something bad happened. Ever since I endorsed that at different phase of my life, I felt I could sit at peace being authentic. So be careful that society is not pushing towards something that is hypey or cool, and then you're forgetting why you're doing it. That being said, I can tell you, it's one of the most fulfilling thing you have, because think about accountants. They work very hard, they have businesses and tax, they work like crazy, and when they succeed and they file your tax on time, do you say congratulations and put them on the first page of the press? No, they have no positive feedback of how hard they worked. Some professions don't have that. Entrepreneurship, when you win, people clap around, people are happy, you create jobs, you feel good about yourself. There's like, there's a lot of positive emotional thing, and actually, Money is not the, the, the question here, it's not a million dollars. What you mean is like, if you have to generate wealth for yourself and for your communities, and I put both together, people that try to generate wealth only for themselves will fail one way or another, morally or economically. It doesn't work, we're social animals. Thanks for listening to The Wagon Live. Tune in next week for another episode. If you haven't already, make sure you subscribe by hitting the subscribe button.